0: It was not uh, easy. So thank you, Brianna, for your leadership uh, today. Turn to Mark chapter 5 in our study of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 5. Mark has 16 chapters. We're through four of them, so we're a fourth done with our study. And today we begin in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. Now, in preaching classes, or homiletics classes, as the seminary likes to call them, you're taught that it's good to start a sermon with what's called a hook. A hook is a joke or an anecdote or some dramatic story that draws the congregation into your teaching. And generally speaking, starting a sermon with a hook is good advice. That's why I often start with a joke that few of you find funny. Um, Or like last week, I started with a question about fear. That was my attempt at a hook. And The hook can relax people, or it can engage people, or at the very least, it begins to put our minds, all of our minds, on the same set of tracks. But there are some portions of Scripture that don't need that. Sometimes there is so much drama and and intrigue in the very text itself that the words just simply need to be read. The story becomes sort of its own compelling motivation Uh, to listen to what's being said. And our text for this morning is one of those stories. If this is not the most interesting incident in the life of the Lord Jesus, I'm really not sure what is. It's an event so descriptive and so riveting and so strange and and fascinating that merely reading it, I think, will get your attention all by itself. So if you're not in Mark chapter 5, turn there. We're going to dive in and read verses 1 through 20. Mark, inspired by the Spirit, writes this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived amongst the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus?' So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. The longest narrative in Scripture that deals with demonic possession and exorcism and the driving out of demons. We're going to talk about this narrative in four frames this morning. They're there in your notes. The maniac, the miracle, the masses, and... The mission. If you remember last week, we studied the end of Mark chapter 4. And in that scene, you have the first of four successive miracles performed by, by Jesus. So at the start of chapter 4, there are four parables. At the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5, there are four miracles. And I don't think that symmetry is accidental. So Jesus' calming of the storm was the first of these four successive miracles. And in the second miracle, in the one that we just read, Jesus is again calming a, <clears throat> a storm. A storm every bit as violent as the storm they just came through on the sea, but this one in the life of a man known as the Gerizine Demoniac. In the region and his, the, the region Jesus and his disciples have crossed over to, it's somewhat disputed, but most believe it's the modern-day Town of Kersey, and there's a map here that I, I think we've looked at a few times as we studied, and you can see um, the, the, what's Gergasa there, or Gergesa, I should say, and and Kersey, which is what we would call that, that town or that village today, was once a place called Gergesa, sometimes associated with a larger town inland from the sea called Gadara. You can see it there, south uh, away from the Sea of Galilee, south and just to the east. But it, it doesn't really matter, though there's some dispute. The point of the geographic setting and the point of crossing over to the east side of the sea is that now Jesus and the disciples, they are in Gentile country. The region they are now in is a region called, you can see it there, the Decapolis. It's a, na- it's a region named for its ten Greek cities. Deca meaning ten, ten cities. The cities, Greek in origin, were now They were now almost thoroughly Roman So the Decapolis is not Jewish territory It's occupied by Rome Pompey had captured the region in 63 BC And each of these cities They minted their own coins They policed their own surrounding areas They had temples where they worshipped the Roman Emperor In addition or, or, Or I should maybe say because of this There was an enormous contingent of Roman soldiers That occupied these cities That were east of the Jordan River there these soldiers, they kept the peace in Palestine during what's called the Pax Romana, this great era of Roman peace. But their homes were, were centralized, even though they worked throughout the region, their homes were centralized in these Roman cities of the Decapolis. So just store that bit of information away because we'll come back to it. But back to the disciples, the 12 and Jesus, they have escaped the crowds, they've left that, that northwest region there where Capernaum is located. Of the Sea of Galilee. And now, after the most fearful, amazing, ex- exhausting night of their lives, the men come ashore, they're seeking rest, needing a break from ro- rowing all night, and, and seeing Jesus perform the greatest natural miracle they've ever imagined. And what happens? They immediately encounter a madman. So there will be no rest, at least not for them. Jesus is again confronted by a man with a great need. Now let's look at what this passage says about this maniac. How does it describe this maniac? Verses 2 through 8. First we see it describes him as unclean. The first thing we notice about this man is that he is unclean. And there are several layers to his unclean condition. Unclean because verse 2 says he is possessed by an unclean spirit, which is to say... He is under the control of demons. And because our thinking today is so anti-supernatural, what we often forget, I think, with our modern Western minds, is that demons are in fact real. Satan is real. Evil is real. And it's not just you know the stuff that makes for good horror movies. No. There is real, powerful, supernatural evil. And it can manifest itself in a tangible way. Way people and nations and places can come under the control, the possession of the demonic. And this man was one of those people. He's also unclean because he lives amongst the dead. He's living in these tombs, these tombs that were carved into the sides of the cliffs of this region. And and there's a slide here, I think a picture of um, the hillside at Kersey there. This is right near the shore. You can't see the water. But as it moves down, you'd be able to see it. But these this is that area, this sort of jagged cliff section there on the eastern shore. And in these rocks, they would hewn out these, these tombs. And these were a place of the dead. So he's living in these tombs. He's he's a living, breathing person with dignity, with friends, with a family. But he's more at home amongst the dead. And for a Jew to come in contact with the dead, this made you physically and spiritually unclean. So you look at this man's situation. He's not just coming in contact with the dead. He's sleeping around them. He's eating around them. His home is with the dead. He's unclean. He's also unclean because he's a Gentile. We have no reason to believe that this man is a Jew. If he was from this particular geographic region, the Decapolis, he was most likely a Gentile. Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean. And because of this, they didn't live anywhere near them. Jews lived in their areas, Gentiles lived in their own areas. This is why the soldiers lived in the Decapolis. They didn't live amongst the Jews. So this man is a demon-possessed Gentile living amongst the dead. So for a Jew, this is the dictionary definition of unclean. He's unclean. He's also uncontrollable. Look at the text. This is a significant wording. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. It says in verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. Remember back to chapter 3? What did, what did Jesus tell the religious leaders from Jerusalem? The ones that accused Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebul accused him of using the power of Satan. What did he tell them? He told them that to plunder the strong man's house, you have to first bind the strong man. In effect, you have to undo the strong man's work, Satan's work, meaning you have to be stronger than Satan. That was the point of his teaching there. Which is significant because the strong man that's controlling this man, this text makes clear, no one could bind him. The demonic, satanic strength in this man is greater than any shackle or any chain could control. He is uncontrollable. Therefore, he's exiled away from the masses, away from the community, isolated, where he cannot harm anyone. So the man is unclean, he's uncontrollable. He's also altogether unstable. He's just not in his right mind. Night and day, he's crying out, He's wailing at the torment that he is under. And not only that, he's a physical danger to himself. He's cutting himself with rocks and with stones, no doubt trying to l- release whatever it is that's, that's inside of him, whatever it is that's tormenting him. Luke tells us he's unclothed. Matthew tells us he is a harm to those who come near him. He's a thoroughly unstable man. This is much more than just a creepy neighbor, much more than a Boo Radley-type figure. This is a raving madman. He has no place in society. The demonic forces that have overcome him have have thoroughly ruined him. He has no life. He has no hope. He's a complete wreck of a human being. That's this man. Yet under the control of the dark forces within him, when he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus come ashore, he runs to him. Don't you know the disciples were happy? You have this naked, bloody, raging demoniac running to Jesus. And he falls down before him in fright and in submission. He falls down before him, and the unclean spirits begin to plead with Jesus that he not torment them. Bit of an irony there, as they've been tormenting this man. They're asking Jesus to not torment them. But what's striking to me is the mere distant presence of Jesus on the shore causes this man, this man that no one could control, to grovel in submission at the feet of Christ. The presence of Jesus absolutely cuts him to his knees and makes him a beggar. Now, demons may not love the truth like the Christian, but they know the truth better than any Christian. They know who Jesus is and they're trying to get out ahead of whatever he might be planning to do to them. That's what we see here. So the evil spirit says, what do you have to do with me? Then he addresses the Messiah, calls him, calls him Jesus, son of the Most High God. And that address is not only a recognition of who Jesus is, it's also an address that acknowledges the great power that Jesus possesses. The Most High God is the name El Elyon. It means God the Sovereign. The Most High means Sovereign. Above all others. Higher than all others. In utter control of all things. All throughout the first four chapters of Mark, Jesus has been appealing to his divinity through his teaching and his miracles, proclaiming his divine nature. This is his primary agenda. And his lordship is a truth claim that the disciples... The disciples are confused and frightened by. The religious leaders want to kill him for it. His family thinks he's crazy, but the demons, the demons actually get it. For the second time in the book, they call him El Elyon, son of the Most High God. So that's the first eight verses of the chapter, a vivid description of this maniac welcoming Jesus Welcoming, a loosely defined term, to the eastern shore of the sea. Next, we have the miracle itself, verses 9 through 13. The first thing Jesus asks as he summons the unclean spirit out of this man is he asks him his name. He asks the demon-possessed man his name, and the unclean spirit answers, he answers in the plural, my name is Legion, for we are many. So given that answer, it's apparent that Jesus is dealing with not one unclean spirit, but with a demonic concentration of evil, a demonic concentration. So he has more than one demon. He has a great multitude of unclean spirits. And this is underscored by the fact that this concentration of demons is named Legion which is a profoundly significant detail. This, most, th- this might be the most significant detail in the entire story. A legion of Roman soldiers numbered about five or 6,000 men. And I don't think that means that we can say that a concentration of 6,000 demons had taken control of this poor man. But I do think when legion answers, for we are many, I don't think that's an understatement. Or, or excuse me, I think that's an understatement, I should say. And I have to point out that the use of the name Legion is significant for two other reasons. One, because of who Mark's primary, primary readers are. And two, because of where this miracle is taking place. First, his primary readers are Christians in Rome. And because of the cruel and diabolical Emperor Nero, these early Roman believers, they're very unsure of their future in the city and also really unsure of their future in general. And the name of the unclean spirit and what Jesus about is about to do to it would be startling to these Roman first century readers. As for where this is taking place, I said earlier this miracle is taking place in the Decapolis where many of the Roman soldiers who occupied the region were living. So from Antioch to Beersheba, from Joppa to Jeresh, first century Palestine was occupied by a Roman legion specifically the 10th Roman legion and it would be the 10th Roman legion under the command of the future emperor Vespasian he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD now the 10th legion was one of the most famous of the legions of Rome Rome had as many as 28 legions at one time but the 10th had the reputation of being one of the most formidable and the assignment to occupy and keep peace in Palestine was said to be the the most dangerous of all the assignments in the empire. And just as the 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 fifth flight training squadron, who who Doug Stauffer, if you know Doug, he's about to take command over. He's about to take over the fifth. Just as the fifth out here at Vance has an emblem, they have an emblem it's the spitten kitten. You guys recognize that patch? And I think the thirty third they have a they have a dragon on on their. On their patch, that's their emblem. Just as those squadrons today in our military have an emblem, the 10th Roman Legion had an emblem. Their emblem in the first century, sure enough, it was a boar. It was a pig. They chose chose that to mock the Jews who viewed pigs as unclean. And you see where this is going, don't you? You see the depth of the miracle he's about to perform. Jesus is saying, I don't just have power over demons. I don't just have spiritual power. I have political, I have military power. I have power over Rome, the 10th Roman Legion. They may destroy the temple and all of Jerusalem, but I can dispose of them in an instant. So the unclean spirit in this man, his name is Legion, and this concentration of demonic spirits come to Jesus with a specific supplication with a specific ask of him verse 10 says they beg Jesus not to send them out of the country which is simply an appeal not to be sent into the abyss they recognize Christ's power over everything even the abyss and they don't want to go there and so they see a herd of pigs on the hillside and they beg Jesus to send them into the pigs and verse 13 says he gave them permission like a kid asking for a cookie, the powerful demonic forces have to get permission from Jesus. The demons can do nothing without the permission and decree of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus permits them to enter into the pigs. But the demonic supplication ultimately leads to a demonic destruction. The herd of swine, numbering 2,000, it says, rushes down the steep bank on the eastern edge of the sea and they drown. 100,000 pounds of pig, 50 tons of pork destroyed. And because of the sheer volume of pigs involved, somebody is going to be angry about this. And it's not the folks from PETA. You know, PETA would, would, you know, they would have been upset with Jesus, but that's not who we're going to be dealing with here. Let's look at the third point, verses 14 through 17, the masses. The herdsmen flee the scene. They go report what's happened. Not sure if they're more stunned by what has happened to the, to the possessed man or what has happened to the pigs. Nevertheless, the masses show up on the scene, and they see the demon-possessed man. He's sitting there. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. And the first thing they are is afraid. They're afraid. This group from the Decapolis, immediately they have reverence for Jesus. Just like the disciples in the boat a few hours earlier, they're afraid when when the kind of power and authority that Jesus has manifests itself. The most common response is not applause or high fives or even joy, it's fear and reverence and awe. This demon-possessed man, this man that no one in the area could bind or control, he's now completely calm. Just as the the sea was made still and the waves were made placid, this man's heart and mind was still. He's utterly placid, utterly calm. Can you even imagine? When was the last time this man had any peace, any calm, any stable moment? But here he sits. He's clothed. He's tranquil. He's essentially whole. He's in his right mind which leads the people to fear, but then it leads to something else. Look at verse 17, a heartbreaking sentence if there ever was one. They begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Their reverence did not turn to worship. It turned to rejection. The masses rejected the Son of God. What's the easiest way to get people to reject you? Destroy their livelihood. Pack their pocketbook. Take their money. For people in the first century, wealth was not held in the bank or in the markets. It was primarily in your livestock. Perhaps the demons knew this. Perhaps they thought, if we destroy the pigs, if we go into the pigs and destroy the pigs, the people will then come and destroy Jesus. Perhaps it was that calculated. I don't know. But I do know the owner of these pigs did not have a category for someone like Jesus, so they rejected him. He had ruined what was most important to them, and they failed to see his lordship over their lives. So it is with each of us. The real moment of truth in your life and in your relationship to Jesus is the moment you realize he can do whatever he wants with you. The real moan of truth is when you realize that he is in control and he has lordship over your life. And you can either submit to that or you can reject that. But what you need to see is that if you reject Jesus, you haven't fully rejected the concept of lordship. You've just made a decision about what kind of lord you'll let rule over you and perhaps it's money or freedom or power or certain social standing, when you reject the lordship of Christ, you haven't escaped authority. You've just given authority to something else. And it's something that doesn't love you, and it doesn't care for you. And unlike Jesus, it doesn't have control over all things. Which brings us to the last point. We come full circle, full circle, back to the man who's been healed His heart stands in stark contrast to the masses. Look at verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. The masses wanted away from Jesus. He, this man, wants to be with Jesus. And did you notice that this is like the fourth or fifth time Jesus has been begged to do something? Did you notice that as you read through the story? Jesus never had any children, but he knew exactly what it's like to have people begging for stuff all the time. My kids are on the back row. This man who's been healed, he seeks permission to come and join the twelve, but Jesus says no. He says no, which is funny because he's granted the request of the demons and he's granted the requests of the fearful, angry masses that wanted him to leave, why won't he grant the request of this poor man whose life has been changed by his mercy and his power? Why won't he let him come? He won't grant him permission because he has a commission for him to fulfill. Look at the commission given by Jesus in verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. On you. This, by the way, is the first preacher Jesus ever sent out. He hasn't yet sent out the disciples. He hasn't sent out the 70. This is the first person Jesus ever sent out to preach. And he is a Gentile who had a really, really, really messed up past. And when this guy showed up in cities of the Decapolis, he was like, I don't know how to tell you guys this, but I used to be a naked, demon-possessed maniac. That was his story. And Jesus said, go tell it. Go home, he says. Go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And he went away, verse 20. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis. He goes throughout the region and he tells his story. True faith showing itself in what? In obedience in this man. True faith showing itself in obedience and the question becomes i wonder if his ministry had any effect i wonder if he was fruitful well if you jumped ahead to chapter seven jesus returns to the decapolis and immediately upon his arrival it says they brought to him one who was deaf and but wait a minute why would people in the decapolis bring somebody to jesus for healing He'd only been there one time, and it was very briefly, and he was asked to leave almost immediately. How would they know? They'd gotten word, hadn't they? And it wasn't just these men who brought him a deaf person. The very next scene, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, again, in the Decapolis, Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000 Gentiles. He's only been in the region one other time, and thousands probably counting women and children, maybe up to fifteen or 20,000 show up to see him. Why? Because of this faithful, obedient man. This is wonderful. You say, well, maybe, maybe I'd be more obe- obedient if I just knew more scripture. What? What did this guy know? He knew nothing. He knew he had been transformed. That is it. And so what this teaches us is, if you're a Christian, you don't have to be an expert in apologetics to share your faith. You don't have to know a bunch of Bible verses. You don't have to be able to answer every question about evolution, or the age of the earth, or predestination or free will. No, all you have to do is be a witness to what Christ has done in your life. If he has shown you mercy, you are qualified to tell others about his mercy. That's the example I'll conclude with a couple of things. I just want to make this real practical as we close. One of the reasons I think Jesus sent the unclean spirits into the pigs, and we don't really know for sure. It's just this this crazy thing. But one of the reasons I think he did it is when the 2,000 pigs rushed into the sea, destroying themselves, he wanted the man he had just healed to see it. He wanted the man to tangibly understand the power that had controlled him. In effect, Jesus wanted him to see exactly what he had been saved from. See that? Do you, do you, do you recognize at all what Jesus has saved you from? And it's not just hell, but it's a life of sin and destruction a life that you can't break free from on your own, a life of bondage and despair and loneliness and pain and isolation? Do you recognize what he has saved you from? The power that had been over you. And so what you see in this demoniac, you see a picture of all of us. He is unclean and uncontrollable, and unstable. He is in slavery to evil. And you may not think of yourself without Christ as evil, but the Bible describes every sinner as a slave to sin. That's what you and I are without Christ. We are slaves to sin. And what's so terrible about slavery? What's so terrible about slavery? In slavery, you can't help yourself. You belong to something or someone else that you can't break free from you can't free yourself, you're in bondage that's slavery and the Bible says that we are slaves to sin and to evil and so to think about that practically have you ever have you ever found yourself doing something over and over again something you hate something you actually despise and nothing makes you feel more helpless than doing this thing And after each time you do it, you say, okay, I'm not doing that again. I'm done with that. That's the very last time I go there. And a few hours go by, or maybe a few days go by, and then you're at it again. And it's this terrible, terrible cycle. And maybe when you started doing it, you did it because it made you feel strong, or it made you relax, or it gave you this sense of power. But now, over time, it's actually weakened you. It's put you in in shackles, and every time you go back to it, it's like adding another chain to whatever it is that you've been enslaved to. Can you connect at all with that? For some of you, it's a rotten relationship. For others of you, it it might be substance abuse or pornography or your approach to food. But the something that has mastered you and the collective shame you feel over this thing or these things, that sense of desperation in your heart, what that is is slavery. Because you've tried. You've tried to overcome it, and you've, and you've doubled down your efforts, and you've looked to the example of others, and you've attempted different formulas, but you, in trying to free yourself, you fail every single time. And that just makes you more ashamed of yourself. And what is that? That's, that's slavery. And your fundamental problem is likely This, your fundamental problem is what's keeping you shackled is is this. It's that you're not sure Jesus wants anything to do with your darkness. You think if you show him the evil and the darkness that grips you, that it will not be mercy that you find. That it will be torment that you find. Like Legion, who at Jesus' feet says, Don't torment me. That's your posture toward Jesus. And if that's your posture toward Jesus, why would you ever take the darkest parts of you to someone who you thought would torment you? You wouldn't. And so you keep your chains. But this story tells us something very, very powerful. It tells us no matter how hopeless and lost and twisted and dark you are, no matter how enslaved and unclean, The mercy of Jesus can come to you, and it can clothe you. The mercy and grace of Jesus can give you rest, and it it can restore you fully. And some of you need that so badly today. In fact, I think most of us need it every day. We need that restoration that the gospel truth provides for us. And some of you have never, never laid hold of it. You've stayed shackled to your sin and to your darkness and your despair and whatever evil thing it is that has a hold of you. You've never taken it to Jesus. You've never given it to him as a merciful king because you think he's going to smite you. But Jesus doesn't do smiting. He does mercy and he does grace and he does love. And when you give your heart to him, every part of your heart, even the darkest, weirdest places of your heart, He showers you with mercy, and not only that, or perhaps I say, when that happens, you go on mission for him. Mercy this severe compels you to share it with others. You cannot help but take it and share it with others, and evangelism is different than witness. Evangelism is is, is different than witness. Witness is isn't getting up and preaching. Witness is simply telling what God has done in your life. Like the blind man sent to the pool of Siloam. He's questioned, he's, he's under this sequestration by the Pharisees, and what's he say? He says, I, guys, I don't know. I, I don't know all this you're asking me. I don't even, I'm not even quite sure who this guy was. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. That's witness. And that's what this man has done. As Trish comes, let's pray together. Father, we see a story like this, and we are blown away by the way you've told it. And we cannot help but see the point of the story, which is the awesome power of Jesus continuing to be displayed over all things, over every realm. His authority is so evident, but God, in this story, his mercy is so, so evident. And each of us today, we need that mercy. Some of us have have never come really boldly to that mercy. We've never come and really shown ourselves to you for who we are. And I pray that that would happen today. That we would stop curbing up the darkness in our hearts and really give it over to you completely. That we would recognize your great authority. And instead of, in fear, running from you or asking you to leave we would ask you to come in. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your amazing, astounding, matchless grace. It's in Christ's name we pray.